continually ask that by your spirit you would enlighten our eyes to understand the glory of our redemption and the inheritance of the Lord in his saints. Open our eyes to understand the infinite glory of your being, your infinite holiness. Help us to understand our sin and the condition in which we were born and help us to understand the marvel that we were redeemed, even a few in number from all of the earth to be your precious possession, to be called children of God. How great a love you have bestowed on us and help us to ever grow in our realization of that, although we know the full realization awaits that day when we stand before you as the redeemed and are counted blameless in your presence and our hearts are filled with great joy. Keep us looking to that day. And even now as we open your word together, Holy Spirit, we ask you to be our teacher, to be our guide, to unfold for us the glories of the topic that we will consider and all to the everlasting praise of our God through Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Well, uh, as you know, we finished up the last section a couple of weeks or a few weeks ago in Revelation as we uh, wrapped up Revelation 4 and 5 and that small glimpse of the worship that's going on in heaven and will go on in heaven uh, at the revelation and the beginning of God's revelation of his glory, particularly in the judgment of the earth and the, the establishment of his kingdom. So we're going to have a couple weeks uh, now uh, before we go into, or we're going to have some time before we go into chapter 6. And I think there's some things that would prepare our hearts and our minds and our thinking a bit before we go into this next section, which is going to be the beginning of the unfolding of God's judgments which are to come upon the world. So we have a couple of weeks uh, together uh, this week and next week, and then uh, Tim is going to take us back to Genesis uh, for a couple of weeks, and then Trish and I will return from being in North Carolina, and then we'll uh, pick up actually with a couple of more preparatory messages, considering the day of the Lord and some passages out of Daniel. Uh, but in the meantime, all that's to say, uh, over the next couple of weeks, I want to take and do a broad overview of a theology of judgment, a theology of judgment. How are we to think about the whole concept and the idea of judgment as God relates to the world as a holy God and as he relates to sinful humanity? And the fact is that the reality and the topic of judgment is often either avoided or despised, certainly by our culture, but even in popular Christianity. It's not a, it's not a topic that is put out front or discussed very much. In fact, too often the church is embarrassed about the judgment of God. Embarrassed about the judgment of God. Or the idea of God as judge. And feels the impulse to mitigate it in some way, apologize it for it, or and somehow uh, modify it to make it more appeasing to the senses of others. I think we've all seen that to some degree, or experienced that to some degree, uh, when we've seen how this topic is handled. Uh, at large in the, in the church, and particularly when there's uh, opportunity to be in front of a camera uh, and be speaking to the, the nation at large, it's again an embarrassment. Some more uh, complex or maybe, uh, what would you say, educated ways or theological ways this is dealt with is by modifying the theology of judgment through such means as annihilationism. 
Annihilationism is the idea that in some way, whether it's uh, immediate going out of existence or suffering for a period of time and then going out of existence, that when the wicked die and go to judgment and punishment, it will not be eternal. There will be some way, is there some sense in which that would be unfair of God, where the punishment would not match the crime. And so annihilation is uh, one answer to that. Another answer is comes really from many forms, but open theology, some of you all have heard that. And that is simply to say that God is just as grieved as we are about the, the, judge, the uh, difficulties and the suffering that comes into the world. He's as sorry as we are, and he hopes one day to overcome it. All of these, of course, are not biblical responses to the reality of judgment or presentations of it. The reality of God as judge and the one who executes judgments on the earth, both through man and his direct sovereign act from heaven, is in fact nothing to be embarrassed about. It is not a side theme of scripture. It is in fact central and essential to our understanding of God, man, the gospel, and his interactions with the world. In other words, God as judge stands at the very center of his glory and our worship of him as God. It is a doctrine that needs to be clearly understood and to be clearly embraced as good from his people. And so that's what I want to do, and certainly not in any exhaustive sense, but in a broad sense, I want to establish then a proper theology of judgment. And we'll do that, as I mentioned, over the next couple of weeks. And we'll begin by establishing the general context for the idea of judgment, its meaning and its various applications among God's people primarily. And then we'll consider judgment in light of the nature of God and the fall of man. And I hope to get that far today. And then next week, we'll consider specific judgments of God and the effect that understanding God's judgments should have on all men, but particularly on his people. How should we emotionally and in terms of our faith respond to the reality of God as judge? And we'll consider that. But as I noted, we're going to begin this morning by establishing the general context of the idea or the concept of the idea. And so what does the term mean? What do we mean by judgment? Well, in terms of just the language in the Old Testament, there are a variety of words used that are translated judgment and that communicate the idea of judgment. But in the Old Testament, the idea of judgment, although it does have an end-time view, there is certainly that, most of the, the concept of judgment takes place within God's acts in history, both as his sovereign acts and as the way he executes his holiness or works out his holiness uh, among his people. It is largely then the term in the context of legal proceedings, of God's establishment of order among his people and how he acts on behalf of his people in light of the covenant. In the New Testament, the primary term for judgment, it has the idea of, if you go back to classical Greek, the idea of to separate or to sift. In other words, the, the key concept is to make a distinction. And that eventually took on the meaning of to render a verdict. And so this is the general idea of it, that it is to separate right from wrong, truth from error, and render a verdict on both. In this sense, then, the concept of judgment is inextricably bound to the idea of justice. You could actually say, then, that judgment is the exercise of justice or the application of justice, of just laws, of, of moral justice within a society. Judgment, then, is the idea of upholding, again, what is right and condemning what is wrong based on an ultimate standard. 
That's the idea of judgment. Again, it is the application of justice. Judgment then is rendering a decision. It's the means of maintaining justice and the ethical and civil responsibilities of individuals and institutions within a nation. In other words, the idea of justice needs an application. It needs to be upheld. Judgment is the upholding of that uh, justice, and that is how a nation can function. It's how there can be order, and particularly in relation to God's people, it's how he maintains the righteousness of those who identify with him. So that's what I want to begin, and in a sense, the, the presentation is going to be from the lesser to the greater, but... Uh, that being said, I want to begin just by considering the idea of judgment as God exercised judgment through his people and among his people. The judgment that God exercises among and through his people who live in active obedience to his revealed will and his nature and his commandments. One interesting way to introduce this is the idea of judgment as it's related to the covenant worship of the nation of Israel and particularly to the ministry of the high priest. Uh, I don't, maybe you remember this, but uh, within the law and establishing the garments of the high priest and the functions of the, of the temple and so forth, in Exodus chapter 28, Aaron, the first high priest, is said to have uh, in, in all of his garments what is called a breast piece of judgment. The breast piece of judgment was a cloth that essentially was folded in half and covered uh, the front of him and was held by gold rings on his shoulders and so forth. And it had within it, garnered in it, the 12 stones, these 12 precious stones. It was another representation of Israel as he went into the holy place and the most holy place, performing his his function as the high priest. But this, this, this garment that he wore over the ephod, it was in addition to the ephod that he wore, uh, was called the breastpiece of judgment. Now the specific symbolism of that idea of judgment is not entirely clear. However, it is clear that it bore a representative function of his role as high priest who was mediating God's, the sacrifices of the people before God and mediating God's will to his people. And so it could have had any, of, any one of or a combination of, probably a combination of all of these ideas, this idea of the, the breastplate of judgment. It could have been, and certainly was, a weighty reminder then of the requirement of righteousness and justice in the exercise of his role and of the nation before God. That they were to be a people who were marked by carrying out and living consistent with the righteousness of God and his judgments. It also served as a picture of his role in intercessory prayer in which he would seek God's judgments on behalf of his people. On behalf of his people. It also served as a symbol of the atonement that he was made on behalf of the people and the judgment God rendered for his people based on that covenant. But all of that is subsumed under this idea of judgment, of judgment. And it was related to the very idea of God's people as being his covenant people redeemed out of the land of Israel. Now that being said, how has it really worked out among them? Well, as I noted, Israel was to live and to practice God's judgments and statutes. They were then, what that means is, they were to confront sin and promote righteousness as a necessary component of displaying God's glory uh, among the nations. Let me give just one one, uh, example of this. 
where it brings these ideas together. And it's in Leviticus chapter 18. I'm just going to mention it. But in Leviticus 18, he says this. He says, Then the Lord spoke to, well, beginning in verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt, where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan, where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You are to perform my judgments and keep my statutes to live in accord with them. Again, I am the Lord your God. So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments by which a man may live if he does them. I am the Lord. Now that word there that's translated, if you're reading the New American Standard uh, judgments, uh, is a key Hebrew word that means uh, just that. However, it is translated, if some of you have an ESV, you'll find the translation of rules. And if you have an older version, the American Standard version, it has the, the uh, translation of ordinance. But the essential meaning of that word is a legal decision, a sentence passed by a judge. A legal decision, an evaluation that is made based on what is right and what is good, and then, of course, what is not good and what is evil. In this sense, what was evil and what was not good is what they were coming out of from the land of Egypt and what they would experience in the land of Canaan. And what is good and what is right is what God had revealed to them from Mount Sinai through Moses and in the law. And they were to make judgments among the people that they were to live consistently with what God revealed and to condemn and to rid themselves of the sins of the nations. They were then to render judgments. They were to render judgments. And that is how they maintained God's just cause by doing so. And again, it was based on the knowledge of God's nature and his will. And as you're familiar with, throughout the Old Testament and in the Proverbs and so on, the quality of the judge or and later what would uh, the king was based on his consistency of making righteous judgments. Judgments that were made on righteousness. And again, this is how God upheld his glory and maintained order among his people. Now, although you might go, that's, that's wonderful, and that's how the old, all that Old Testament stuff, which is very interesting, but let me remind you of this as well. That although the particulars of the Mosaic Law, so all of the specifics, all of the specific uh, commands and ordinances, those things that distinguish between clean and unclean and so forth, although those have been done away with, with the coming of Christ and in the New Covenant, this idea of rendering judgments based on righteousness and based on the knowledge of God and of His covenant holds for the church as well, for you and us, under the New Covenant. It's the same. The church is commanded to make judgments among her members based on the nature of God's grace in the covenant for his glory and the blessing of his people. We too, as the church, are called to maintain the righteousness of God and uphold the holiness of God's name by rendering judgments among ourselves. The most common passage or succinct or full passage on that is, as you might imagine, in Matthew chapter 18. Again, let me just remind you in a very basic way of what that says. In Matthew 18, Christ, while he was walking on earth, gave specific instructions on how the church is to deal with sin among his members. 
The idea, the, the goal of that ultimately is, of course, the restoration of that sinning member to bring them back into the place of blessing and righteousness among the people of God. But it has within it, too, as well, the threat of expulsion, of a judgment being made by the church on the spiritual condition of that person and, of their, and, of, and putting them out of the ability to fellowship as a Christian among God's people. And so he says, you know, if your brother sins, you go to them, you show him his fault in privates. If he listens, you've won your brother. If they don't, then you take two more with you. If they don't listen to the two, then you tell it to the church. And if they don't listen to the church, then they are to be, in the words of Jesus, to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, the church is not to tolerate sin. The church is to make moral and spiritual judgments among her members. That grace does not eliminate the call to holiness and the responsibility of God's people to maintain that holiness among her members. So there is the idea of judgment. Of course, there are many examples of this, but Paul demonstrated this again uh, in a well-known passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You know that he was addressing the church in Corinth who was tolerating sin. And no doubt they were tolerating this sin in a misguided understanding of the love of God and the patience of God and of grace. No doubt thinking of themselves as being very pious because of their ability to still accept and live with this brother who's committing a heinous sin. And that sin particularly was a sin not even named among the Gentiles. And that was that one had his father's wife, most likely a mother-in-law, but nonetheless a heinous sin. Paul tells them that their refusal to address this was actually not a picture of their love or their piety or their exceptional spirituality or any of those things. He says, rather, you have, in verse 2, become arrogant and you have not mourned so that the one who has done this deed would not be removed from your midst. Now listen to how he frames his reaction to this in verse 3. He says, For I on my part, though absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him. He's rendered a verdict. He said this is outside of God's holy will. This is something that needs to be dealt with. He says, I have judged him who has committed this as though I were present. And then he says in verse 5, he has decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And then he calls the church to maintain this kind of integrity and judging among its members. Verse 12, for what, I, what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among your members. In other words, just as Israel was to maintain righteousness, to maintain their holy testimony before the nations, who were maintain their covenant faithfulness to God, they were to judge and render righteous decisions among her members. In the same way, the church is to do the same within the stipulations of the new covenant, in the context of the new covenant. Sin, as Paul would say in this passage and in other places, is like leaven that leavens the whole lump. And if sin and corruption and iniquity is allowed to fester and foster within the people and among the people of God, then it has the tendency of moving beyond that individual out into that local congregation and beyond so that its corrupting influence is multiplied. And God says, do not let that happen. The church is to make judgments. The church is to make judgments. In fact, we are commanded to do that. We are told to do it. It's a matter of obedience to the will of God. More to say on that, but here I'm just establishing that as a concept. 
Now in both then, the Old Testament and the New Testament, then righteous judgments among God's people are not merely a, 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 a human work or a human endeavor. He makes clear in both contexts to say that when his people render righteous judgments, righteous decisions, righteous verdicts, along with its consequence, that it is in fact a reflection of the very will of God among his people. It's a reflection of the will of God. Let me just give you two uh, quick passages. The first is in Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 17. And again, I'm, I'm just going to mention it. Deuteronomy 1.17, listen to how he phrases this. You shall not show partiality in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not fear man. Why? For the judgment is God's. The judgment is God's. In other words, that's God's will. It's God's command. It's God's judgment that's being exercised through your obedience to him by dealing with the sin. He says the same thing in Matthew chapter 18. After the church has rendered judgment on an unrepentant uh, sinning and a sinning uh, brother or sister, he says this. He says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Verse 19, again, I say to you, if two or, or, if, that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have been gathered together in my name, I am there in your midst. Just a footnote, as many of you all knew we have to mention this, that is not some prayer promise for a Wednesday night meeting. It is, in fact, always, every time that that language of witnesses like that is used, it is in the context of a legal decision, of a judgment, of a, of a binding decision, of a verdict being rendered. And here, the, the, the encouragement is this, is that when the church acts faithfully to God's command and addresses sin and judges sin among her midst, that they are, in fact, demonstrating on earth God's will in heaven. They are affirming God's will and God's presence among his people in rendering just judgments. It is the will of God. So righteous judgments among God's people are not contrary to his will or for the church, but they are essential to it. And it even expands more than this. That's in the nature of unrepentant sin. But even in the general context of how the church lives together, God calls uh, his people to render righteous and wise decisions in dealing with matters of disagreement and so forth among them. Let me give you one other passage on this briefly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you're familiar with it. Does any of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more matters of this life? So this is what he says. That... Judgment is an essential part of how God is going to mediate his just decisions in the world, in the future. Even the church over angels, and whatever that means exactly, but there will be some participation that the church has in judging angels. But he says in both of those, because judgment is an essential part of what God has called his people to, that it should be manifest in the wisdom of his people to decide even lesser matters among themselves. That's the idea. 
And it includes then the command that we should be doing that, that the church should be doing that, that we should be solving disputes and rendering just judgments among ourselves, for we have been called to do that, to do that. So if I were to summarize all of that main part, uh, and many more could be added, but that's the big idea, uh, I would say this, that judgment, we could say, is a moral, legal, and spiritual verdict rendered on individuals and nations as a means of upholding justice and righteousness to promote civil order and covenant faithfulness. Do you get that? Let me say it one more time. I should. Is it this? Not, it is a moral, legal, and spiritual verdict rendered on individuals and nations as a means of upholding justice and righteousness in order to promote civil order and covenant faithfulness. It's then how God's people are to live before him. Now let me give another aspect of judgment. So that's judgment as God works out his will among his people. Among his people for his own righteousness and for his own glory. Uh, another aspect that of this idea of judgment in scripture is that its judgment is also used to speak of God's acts on behalf of his people. On behalf of his people. So in other words, the idea of judgment isn't merely uh, God bringing retribution to sin. It is God acting in covenant faithfulness, even in salvation, for his people. For his people. Now, most significantly, we see that in a book titled, can you imagine where we're going to go? Judges. Okay, there is a book entitled Judges. Uh, Tim has been going through that in Sunday school. I think he's finished with it. Uh, and he's explained some of it. So those in Sunday school, this is, this is review. But the idea of the judges are those people that God specifically raised up in response to their cries to God while undergoing some kind of oppression, which itself was a result of their own sin and covenant unfaithfulness. But in their distress, they would raise up a cry to God and God would then raise up a judge who would act as their deliverer, as their deliverer. They would deliver his people for them. In that, in that sense, they were rendering judgment for God's people. We see that same ministry through the prophets in that transitional figure of Samuel, who was uh, also a prophet, who rendered judgments for the people of God. In other words, they made decisions about the will of God to maintain justice and righteousness. They revealed, they, they acted consistent with God's will for his people and made decisions uh, to uh, maintain uh, that will and the peace and, and order and so forth among his people. So then the idea of judgment here, and this is in a very positive sense, a very positive sense of God acting in covenant faithfulness for his people. And that... That is why, if you read through in the Old Testament sometimes, and particularly the Psalms, uh, you run across statements that otherwise might sound a bit odd and be hard to understand. For example, what are we praying when we read Psalm 19 and we hear this from the lips of David? He says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true. They are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. The judgments of God are the delights of his people. They are sweetness to his people. They are food for the soul. They are a delight to those who are walking uprightly and who do truly fear God and to fear their covenant-keeping God. 
He says in Psalm 119.37, in a somewhat even more striking manner, he says this in verse 137. Righteous are you, O Lord, and upright are your judgments. Upright are your judgments. He acts in his judgments in exceeding faithfulness and in righteousness. And then they are the delight of his people. They also mean when God acts for his people on behalf of his covenant faithfulness, that his judgments, his upholding what is right, are a means as well of godly fear, of godly fear. Listen to what the psalmist says here in Psalm 119, 120. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. doesn't mean he's afraid of God, he's afraid of... uh, He's afraid of his righteous decisions. It means then that these judgments which God renders cause a circumspect attitude in the heart of the psalmist to walk uprightly. He fears them. He fears the consequences of those those decisions of God that one would act against the people who sin, his own people, and that may and are warnings to himself. Which is why David said also in Psalm 19, by them, can you finish it, your servant is warned by them your servant is warned is warned about walking in righteousness and not straying into ungodliness one other note on that before we get to the next point and that is this that it works both ways then god also renders judgments against israel and as we read this morning in first peter chapter 4 he at times renders it against the church judgment is to begin where with the household of god is against the household of God. He's going to judge the sin of his people. We see that again in his message to the churches. He is going to come with judgment toward his people where there is sin not being dealt with. And it was the same with the nation of Israel. Now we'll look at this briefly next week. But when Israel sinned and acted in covenant unfaithfulness, God brought judgments against his people. And these were... Judgments that were upholding his righteousness even among his people who refused to do so. Let me give you just one passage. And this is in reference to God's judgment to them in exile. Again, we'll mention this more next week. He says in verse... He says in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 24, uh, Who gave Jacob up for spoil and Israel to plunderers? That is when God sent a nation, initially the nation of Babylon, against Jerusalem to destroy her. Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned and in whose ways they were not willing to walk and in whose law they did not obey? And so he poured out on him the heat of his anger and the fierceness of battle and it set him aflame all around and he did not recognize it and it burned him, but he paid no attention. In other words, the judgment of God is very often for his people, but where there is sin undealt with, it can just as easily turn against his people. Because in all of that, the thread and the foundation is God upholding his own righteousness and his own glory. Now, with that being said, again, as an introduction to the idea of judgment, there is behind this idea, as you've probably gathered, even, an even more fundamental and overarching reality to consider in the theology of judgment. And that is judgment as it relates to God and his relationship to man and his purposes for creation. 
Ultimately, all judgment comes from God and must conform to his righteous purposes. James says it succinctly, reflecting most likely Isaiah 33, 22, but he says in James 4, 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and to destroy. There is only one lawgiver and judge. And that means the theology of judgment then must begin as all theology does with God himself. And we cannot understand then God's interaction with the world and with humanity and even with his own people if we do not first grasp and understand his nature and the condition of man. This is somewhat of a review, but it is the necessary starting place. There is no discussion about the idea of judgment. There is no discussion about the way that God deals with man and humanity, whether uh, the way in terms of judgment, if we do not start with the basic understanding of who God is and who man is. Let me begin with a brief overview and to note first that God is the creator. Now we know that, but to say that he is creator is to say that he has all rights and he has all authority. As a matter of fact, the very essence then of sin and of rebellion is to act contrary to this knowledge of God as creator and owner. It is to act in that fancy word autonomously. In other words, on our own authority and self-interest alone. That is the great sin. And that goes directly against the reality of God as creator. Just listen to some of the ways that Scripture talks about this. And this is important when we think of the judgment that God brings upon the whole earth and on individuals. First, that means that God owns the earth. It's his. It's his earth. It's his planet. It's his universe. Exodus 19.5 says this, All the earth is mine. All of the earth is mine. In Psalm 50, 10 through 12, he says this, 10 and 12. Every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills, the world is mine, and all that it contains. Man owns nothing. Man is a sojourner. Man is living on a a planet that does not belong to them, but was created for them to give all glory to the one to whom it does belong. It means that even of his own covenant people, that God owns the land he gave to Israel. Leviticus 25, 23. The land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. So when did Israel get into trouble? When they act like it was their land, their place, as if it was by their own strength and for their own glory and their own happiness alone is the end of their reason for being there. And they did not know their existence there. They did not give the ultimate glory to God. And they did not recognize God's ownership. But they took it as their own. But God owns the land because he's creator. It means this, let's make it more personal, that God owns the soul and the life of every human being. God owns the soul and the life of every human being. Listen to the way he says it in Ezekiel. Ezekiel 18.4 Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine, and the soul who sins will die. It belongs to God. Every human being belongs to God. Every life belongs to God. It is His, and it is His to deal with as He pleases. It means then that God has a claim on every life. Listen to Numbers 8.17. If you remember this, when God established 
sacrifice for the firstborn when he redeemed them after he redeemed them out of Egypt. But he says in Numbers 8.17, Every firstborn among the sons of Israel is mine. It belongs to me. Even your own children do not belong to you. Even your own sons do not belong to you. They belong to me. And therefore, God has all the rights of judgment. God has all the rights of judgment because everything belongs to him. He owns it. It's his to do with as he deems best. Let me give you just one passage again out of the Psalms. Psalm 50, the mighty one God, the Lord, has spoken and summoned the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting out of Zion, the perfection of beauty. God has shown forth. May our God come and not keep silence. Fire devours before him and it is very tempestuous around him. He summons the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. Gather my godly ones to me, those who have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. It is to say that he is the judge of all of the earth. His covenant people, it's his right to enter into that covenant and to keep them for himself. And it's right to exclude and to judge all others. He is the judge of all the earth. It means as well, God is not only creator, that God is holy and good. He is holy and good. And let me just say that from God's perspective, that holiness and goodness are inextricable. They are bound together. Everything that, God, that is good before God's eyes is holy. It is just. It is pure. It is morally pure within itself. Now, goodness is a broader concept than that, but it is to say true goodness. What is truly good and acceptable to God. So he is holy and good. That means, then, is just a reminder, that God is separate. You know, that's the basic meaning of the term, separateness. But in reference to God, it means that God is separate. God exists on another plane. God is not on our level. God is not like a man, just a whole lot bigger and stronger. God is of a class of being that is a class by itself that he alone possesses. Whatever man in all of creation possesses, or even the angelic world, is by sharing and by extension, and is by, by its very nature as creation, not on the same level as God. Not of the same class of being as God. That's, of course, what makes the incarnation so mysterious as well. But it is to say that God is separate in his nature. So we read it before, Isaiah 57, 15. I am the Lord, the high and exalted one. The high and exalted one. He says later in chapter 66 of Isaiah that you could build for me a house that was, contained all of the building material of the universe and it still would not be worthy of my name. Why? Because I'm the one who created all these things. There is nothing in all of creation that could be mounted in the sum total of all that it has to offer that would be equal and worthy to God himself is what he's saying. And so rather it is to walk what he accepts is to walk before him. A separate it means from all that is evil. You know this passage, God is light, and in them there is no darkness at all. There is no darkness at all. So God who created and owns everything is holy. It also means that he is good. What did God say at the end of creation? He looked at everything, and what? It was very good. It was very good. 
It was very good. It was intrinsically good. It was inherently good because it was free from any corruption of sin. It was inherently good because within it was designed everything necessary for the blessing and the delight and the flourishing of man to fulfill God's purpose for their joy and his everlasting glory. It was all there and it was all good and it was without sin. That was the creation that he made. The Lord is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. And again, his goodness and his loving kindness cannot be separated. But the reality is that sin entered into the world. Sin entered into God's creation. And it was when Adam and Eve forgot that God is creator and his ownership of all things. And so they acted There's that fancy word, autonomously, independently, out from under his ownership and his authority and not consistent with his own glory. And so Eve took and listened to the creature, not her husband, and not to the command of God that was communicated to her by her husband. In other words, the whole creation order was reversed and sin entered into the world. And of course, Adam high-handedly sinned and so sin entered into all of humanity. And so there is this now contrast, there is this conflict between who God is, what he has made, and the reality of sin. Think of this, maybe you've thought of this before, maybe not. That judgment is one of many realities then that God ordained to come into existence to display his glory that would, however, never have existed outside of creation in the fall. We understand his attributes and displays of God's holy nature Such concepts as forgiveness, grace, patience, uh, wrath, anger, and judgment. All of those were concepts that outside of the reality of creation would never have existed. They never had opportunity to exist or to find expression in the nature of God. Before God created anything, there was never wrath. There was never the need for mercy. There was never the need for forgiveness. In other words, God created the world as he did so that it would become, as Calvin loved to say, a theater for all of his glory, which now would include these things summarized or epitomized in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Something we'll get to before. But judgment then is something that came into being, that God ordained to come into being through the fall of man. For that matter, not even the incarnation or the law itself would have ever come into being outside of sin, outside of creation and the entrance of sin. But that is the reality that did come into being and it is the condition of all humanity. So that since that moment, since that moment in time when Adam disobeyed and ate of the fruit given to him by his wife Eve in a high-handed act of rebellion against God, sin entered into the world and sin has become the essential and primary condition of man, every man, save the Lord Jesus Christ, from that moment until the last man exists. That sin is what defines us. It is the condition of all humanity. I won't go through it, but... We remember what Paul said in Romans, summarizing from such passages as 
Psalm 14 and others, that there is no one who does good. There is no one who is righteous, not even one. So let's stop as we consider the idea of judgment and say that means out of all of humanity, out of every living human being on the earth, there is not one single person who comes into this world or in and of themselves that is good, that is righteous. All that exists... All that exists in all of humanity are only corrupt, guilty, and condemned beings. That's the only kind of being that could be the product of Adam's generation and of Adam's race. All who are in Adam are in a condition then of sin. That's you, me, and everybody outside of this church and these church walls. That even means that man's relative goodness to other men isn't a sign of goodness, but of even that comes from a corrupted heart before God. You remember Jesus' words in Matthew 7. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, even the love of a parent towards their child and the compassion and the generosity of a parent towards their child is not a display of a goodness that will make them good before God, but even Jesus recognizes even that is coming from one who in their basic constitution is still identified as evil, unrighteous, not good. So how deep it goes. You'll remember that Jesus confronted the rich young ruler with this very fact. He said, called him good teacher. And what did Jesus say? Why do you call me good? There is no one good but God alone. Confronting that man with his own misperceptions of the nature of Jesus himself. He says, why do you call me good? There is no one good except God alone. So here is the reality then of that. Again, under a theology of judgment. That the corruption and sin of mankind puts man in a relationship of hostility and rebellion to God and therefore abiding under his judgment. Under his judgment. Let me just mention some of these and we'll fold this more next week. But in Romans chapter 5, he says this. Now listen, this is how God describes all of those who are outside of Christ and how all of those were in relationship to God before being in Christ by his sovereign grace. It says this. That we were, and I'm just going to point, pick out these descriptions. That we were helpless. That we were unrighteous. That we were sinners. That we were enemies to God. Sinners, helpless, unrighteous, and enemies to God. In Romans 8, he'd say that we were, why we had a mind set on the flesh, at hostility with God. We were in rebellion to God. So all of creation then stands in this condition to be in rebellion, at hostility, and enemies of God. So because of this nature of God then, it is a necessary response of His holiness and the upholding of what is good to judge sin. Now consider this then. Psalm 711. That God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. God is a righteous judge and has indignation every day. Every day, God is offended with the cumulative amount of sin that is committed against him in the entire globe. 
not something that he knows superficially, but that he knows down to the fullest depths of its blasphemy and rebellion and wickedness against him. Every day his holy eyes endure this heinous sight of sin and corruption and iniquity in those who bear his image, whom he owns and whom he created for his glory. Every single day God endures this. That is what the psalmist is getting at. He has indignation every day. And so therefore the basic situation is that a holy God and creator stands in a relationship with his creation where his creation is at hostility with him and therefore under his judgment. So if God is to uphold what is just and right and to distinguish what is just and right from evil, it necessitates then that he bring judgment. That he bring judgment. That's the only way what is good and what is beautiful and what is right can be upheld and can be maintained. And he's committed to that. One illustration of this, briefly, is when God established his presence among the covenant nation of Israel. So Israel, as we know, was just as wicked as the Egyptians out of which they were redeemed. They were redeemed because of a promise that God made. A promise that God made by his own free and sovereign will, beginning with Abraham and then what eventuated in the nation of Israel. And he delivered them. And they were just as prone to the plagues if they didn't obey his commandments and respond in faith, particularly in the Passover, as all of the Egyptians were as well. And then he goes and he establishes with them a covenant and a covenant in such a way where he made provision through the temple and the sacrifices to dwell among them. To be a people in which God dwelled among them. And of course that was in the Holy of Holies. In the most inner place of the tabernacle and later the sanctuary. And because he dwelled among them, he had a basic requirement that they were to be holy. You will be holy, for I am holy. And the quintessential demonstration then of the danger that this situation produced is at the very establishment of the tabernacle, the the centerpiece of where his people were to practice their worship of him. And you remember this. What happened? The, The worship of the tabernacle was established. Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, came near to him, and they offered what is defined as strange fire, Whatever that was, it was something that demonstrated an irreverent heart in which they did not treat God as holy. And what did he do? He consumed them. He consumed them. Because, and then he made this declaration that by those who come near to me, I will be treated as holy. And before all the people, I will be honored. God did not in any way want his holiness among his people to be compromised. And in order to make that fact clear, he judged those who would treat him as unholy. And he did so in a very decisive, in a very public way, so as to be an example for all of the nation and for all of those who would be exposed to it in his word, that he is holy. He is to be approached with holiness and ultimately can only be approached then through sacrifice, through the blood of a sacrifice, through atonement being made. Such is the holiness of God. So if we think of that then again in the nature of God and who man is, that means then that God's basic attitude and relationship with man is one that must be that of judgment. And if that judgment in any way to be with uh, 
withheld or in any way overcome. It must be through God making some provision for man. He must do something for man so that they're not consumed immediately from the earth. That is the nature of his judgment. Well, we're going to look at that just a little bit more next week. And then some examples of that and how we should respond to it. But let's at least say this to wrap it up here. Is that the holiness and the beauty and the glory of God is demonstrated not only in his salvation, but conversely even by his judgment. And we'll unfold that more next week. It is in his judgment of sin that God demonstrates what is good, what is beautiful, what is holy, what is for flourishing. The judgment of God on sin is not the rash uh, outburst of anger from an irrational or impulsive God. It is the settled determination of God to uphold what is good in his creation, to uphold his glory. And ultimately, even to uphold what is good for his people. And of course, the expression of that, that stands at the centerpiece of it all, is in the giving of his son. And that in order to bring a people condemned into his presence, to enjoy that goodness, to enjoy that flourishing, to enjoy that blessing, he took that judgment and that wrath and he placed it on his son, who took it in the place of his people so that they could no longer be under judgment, but under grace. And that's what we remember in the table as we look at it this morning, as we come to it this morning. We remember that in these elements that God, who should be our judge, has by his glory and by his grace become our savior. He who should be our fear and our dread has become to us our hope and our delight and our joy. He who should be estranged from us has brought himself near to us in the most personal way imaginable by inhabiting humanity by the eternal Son to stand in our place to fulfill his righteousness for us, to bear our judgment for us so that he could give his delights and his glories and his kindnesses to us forever in his Son. And so we remember that as we come to the table. So let me pray. The men will come forward and then they'll pass out the elements. Father, we do pray that you would open our eyes to your glory, to think and have our minds renewed, to think according to reality and the way that things are. Your judgment is nothing to be embarrassed of, is nothing to mitigate or minimize. But indeed, we can only understand the fullness of your glory and of grace by embracing the reality of your holiness and our fallenness, of your purity and our impurity, of your glory as creator and our corruption as creatures. And it is only in that context we can delight and marvel in what is symbolized behind us, behind me or in front of us, and that is an empty cross in which our Savior died as a sacrifice for us, in which you rose, our Lord Jesus Christ, for us, in which even now you sit as mediator at the right hand of God for us, in which you will return for us, for the ultimate demonstration 
of your judgment to remove the wicked from the earth and establish righteousness and justice from shore to shore. Keep our mind fixed on these things and our commitment to you settled and deeper as we come to you remembering these truths in the ordinance of your table. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.